Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Every year when we come to the beginning of Advent, I think oftentimes uh, people are caught a little off guard by the readings. We often think of Advent as a time of preparation for Christmas, and so it is in the world. And of course, it is quite delightful at that. Christmas uh, decorations are going up in stores and people's homes and in public squares and, of course, in the sanctuary as well, bringing warmth and light to an all-too-cold and all-too-dark season. Christmas shopping is well underway. All the plans for the festivities that are coming up are being made. Cookies are being baked. Cards are being sent out. All of that is going on. And it's liturgically also a preparation for Christmas. It is true enough. Advent, which simply is the Latin word come, is a time for us to step back, to prepare ourselves, both spiritually and mentally and physically, to celebrate that joyous day of Christmas morning when Christ the Lord Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God, very God, a very God, took on human flesh in the form of a babe. The fulfillment of all God's gracious promises to his people of Israel. The fulfillment of his promises to overthrow sin, death, and the devil. And done in a way that is much more sublime and much more miraculous than anyone could have ever expected. Indeed, Advent is a time for us to prepare and rejoice in that miracle that is above all miracles that the God of heaven has deigned to break down the wall of sin that separates us from himself and that he has done it in the most unfathomable of ways possible. And when I say possible, I mean possible only in the sense that all things are possible for God, that he became man. But the coming, the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ is not simply a historical event. It is that, right? Indeed, the eternal Logos was born in Bethlehem, was laid in a manger, heralded by a star and angels, witnessed by shepherds, exalted by the Magi, and held in the tender arms of his mother. This particular coming, indeed, is the central event of all human history. The most important thing to have ever happened. Compared to which, every event in our lives or in the history of the world, whether it be the rise and fall of nations, is meaningless. That the Lord came then in the flesh, though, is not the only coming. It is not the only advent. It is true that Advent is a time to prepare for the celebration of that particular coming in the past. But it is also a time to celebrate and meditate and prepare ourselves for the continued outworking of that miracle. That the Lord came in the flesh then, but even today now he continues to come to us in his word, in his sacrament, and even in his flesh at the altar. In this we see in many ways that Christianity 
is unlike the religions of the world. It is not a religion of ascent that man climbs his way up to God, but it is a religion of descent, of God coming down to dwell with man. In his coming on Christmas morning, in his continued coming, through the means of grace, he descends from heaven above to earth to dwell with you, his people, the church. And so he came then, and he comes now, and as we heard quite clearly over the last three weeks, he is going to come again. There was the first advent of our Lord at Christmas. There is his continual advent, and there is the advent that is yet to come. He came once, meek and mild. He comes now in grace and forgiveness, and he will come again in glory and judgment. And so Advent, the season, still has that eschatological taste to it. For it also continues to prepare us for that second coming. And so in our readings today, we see all three strains coming together. The incarnation in the gospel text. The mystical coming of God to his church in the epistle text. And the final judgment as prophesied by Isaiah in the Old Testament. And the three weave together and complement each other because it is the threefold coming of the one Lord. The prophet Isaiah in our Old Testament text seems double-minded. On the one hand, he eagerly desires the coming of God, even in judgment, saying, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. The Hebrew underlining this text does not read nearly as smoothly as our translation. It is abrupt and disjointed. It is full of dislocations. It reveals the heart of the prophet. It is the fervent and earnest prayer of Isaiah pouring out his soul to God without any worry for refinement of speech. And what does he pray? Surrounded by evil, idolatrous nations, prosecuting all sorts of crimes, grotesque crimes against their fellow man. And... Uh, Rebellion against God. Isaiah cries that God would come in his visage as a consuming fire. To bring justice and the wicked to their knees. That those who neither fear God nor respect man might be stopped in their tracks and held to account. That the very mountains, those iron and inflexible giants upon the earth might shake and thunder with the law of God like Sinai once had. And yet he fears, on the other hand, for Isaiah has beheld the holy God in a vision. He has seen the pre-incarnate Christ seated among the cherubim and seraphim in the throne in heaven. And he knows, to put it mildly, that if God were to visit his people, it might not turn out well for Israel, even for the faithful remnant, even for himself. And thus he confesses, and then he asks the question, in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? And he goes on, we have all become like one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is, even our good works are not so good. Even they are tainted by sin. Sin is not merely a matter of outward action, right? But it is a matter of the heart. Every deed comes under God's judgment, but so does every thought and every word, every inclination of the soul and affection of the heart. And so our English translation is a little too polite here in its translation. It does not want to offend the sensibilities of good Christians with the words of Scripture. The word translated here as polluted garment, to which Isaiah compares even our righteous deeds, is quite literally soiled menstrual rags. That is offensive, and it is shocking language, which is precisely what the prophet means to do. He means to shock and to offend, because if we are apart from Christ, if we have Uh, If God were to reckon to us our sins, our sins of thought and word and deed, even our good works, the best that we can do by our own ability, by our own powers, and by our own strength, are impure, so impure, so unclean, and so offensive and revolting to God that they are like dirty menstrual rags. Isaiah continues, We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. All, everyone, even the prophet himself, is melting away in iniquity. How is it then that Isaiah, recognizing This deep corruption, not just of the enemies of God, but of his own soul can long so passionately for the coming of the Lord. That the mountains would quake with his coming, recognizing indeed that the coming of the Lord will be like a fire on the brush. Because he hopes for forgiveness. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, We are all your people. He hopes for mercy. In the prophetic spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has come upon him, he knows that the Lord will do precisely that. Not too long before this prayer of Isaiah, he was given a vision of the suffering servant, despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, who would be stricken and smitten by the Father in our stead, who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, upon whom would be the chastisement that brought us peace. And so it is that the suffering servant, in whom was no sin, not a single iniquity, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in our gospel text. The city that persecuted and stoned the prophets. To the joyous adulation at first of the crowds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. But soon those shouts of joy would turn to shouts of crucify. And it had to be so. For David's greater son was born for this purpose, 
to go to his death to bring that peace, that forgiveness, that mercy for which Isaiah had hoped. So that the coming of the Lord on the last day would be a day of salvation for all who believe in him. And so it is for us today, just as it will be for us on that coming day in the Holy Communion. It is joy and it is peace. Indeed, as Isaiah has said, God meets him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember him in all their ways. And so it is among us, because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, and in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, the Holy Spirit has called you by the gospel, enlightened you with his gifts, has sanctified and keeps you in the one true faith. And he will sustain you to the end by his word, by his sacraments, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may rise for the offertory. <laughs>